Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. But what about the city of the day after tomorrow? Say, the year 2000. I think it will be completely different. In fact, it may not even exist at all. Well, I'm not thinking of the atom bomb and the next stone age. I'm thinking of the incredible breakthrough which has been made possible by developments in communications particularly the transistor, and above all, the communication satellite. These things will make possible a world in which we can be in instant contact with each other, wherever we may be, where we can contact our friends anywhere on Earth, even if we don't know their actual physical location. It will be possible in that age, perhaps only 50 years from now, for a man to conduct his business from Tahiti or Bali, just as well as he could from London. In fact, if it proves worthwhile, almost any executive skill, any administrative skill, even any physical skill, could be made independent of distance. I am perfectly serious when I suggest that one day we may have brain surgeons in Edinburgh operating on patients in New Zealand. When that time comes, the whole world will have shrunk to a point, and the traditional role of the city as a meeting place for man would have ceased to make any sense. In fact, men will no longer commute, they will communicate. They won't have to travel for business anymore, they'll only travel for pleasure. I only hope that when that day comes, and when the city is abolished, the whole world isn't turned into one giant suburb. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams. And today, we're going to kick off a new series, which I'm naming Voices of the Future. And I can think of no better way to kick off this series than with Arthur C. Clarke, who is renowned as being the prophet of the space age and is arguably the most influential science fiction writer of the 20th century. One of the things that he's most famous for is his predictive abilities. So much has been written on what he got right versus what he got wrong, and, well, I've always wanted to throw my two cents into that there, because I thought, in many ways, his record is a little misrepresented. People love to dig up examples of technology that he talked about in his novels and said that this predicted things like iPads and so forth. But in fact, a close reading of what he had to say would show that actually he predicted something rather different than what you're describing here. In fact, Clark was somewhat famous for getting a number of things wrong and revising them in in later books. But of course, you can't expect uh, anyone to be 100% in their predictability. And when it came to a few very big developments, very big historical developments. Clark was very much prophetic in his outlook. 
For our purposes, we'll be looking at the ones that have to do with uh, space exploration, space travel, commercial space, etc. And a relatively good summation of many of his predictions can be found in the novelization and the film 2001 a Space Odyssey, which, as I'm sure most viewers have probably seen at this time, if you haven't, I strongly recommend it, and the novel is a good read as well. And it was a brilliant opportunity for Clark to summarize what he thought the 21st century would look like. It was a subject that he talked about a great deal in interviews, in uh, educational programming, in speeches. To break it down into four groups, you have telecommunication satellites, space planes and reusable spacecraft, space stations, and colonies on other worlds. Now, according to see these illustrated in 2001, Clark believed that by the turn of the century, humanity will, would have established at least one pinwheel station in orbit, where it rotates in order to provide the sensation of artificial gravity. Spacecraft are able to dock with it, either coming from Earth or from other locations in deep space, so they, they use this place as a port of call. And... Space planes would be how people travel to orbit, rather than rockets and uh, space capsules and the like. And that a lunar colony, certainly a lunar colony at least, would be a reality by 1999, uh, turn of the century. Now, of course, there were many other predictive elements in there, such as uh, artificial intelligence and advances in computing. But uh, yeah, we'll leave that for later. And to give you a really quick preview of who Arthur C. Clarke was, because though his reputation speaks for itself, he rarely needs any uh, any explaining as to who he was or, or what influence he had, there's a lot of details about his life that aren't commonly known, and they played a very major role in his career as a science fiction writer, as a science communicator. So he passed away, in fact, in 2008, in his home in Bepi, Colombo, Sri Lanka, where he spent most of his years. And he left behind a very huge legacy and a huge body of literature. And it all started for him during World War II, where he was trained to become a radar specialist for the Royal Air Force. He helped develop the early warning radar system that saved Britain during the, the Battle of Britain. It allowed them to see where the uh, Luftwaffe was coming from and uh, destroy their bombers and fighters. After the war, he finished his education in mathematics and physics and went on to write extensively about space exploration and its implications for the future. He also supplemented his income through his writing and as an inventor. He became the president of the British Interplanetary Society and he was issued a number of honorifics like the Commander of the Order of the British Empire he was named a Fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, a huge honor among scientists, and declared a Knight Bachelor in 2000 for his service to literature. And, of course, during the 1950s and 1960s, and subsequently, certainly, he was known as one of the big three extremely influential science fiction authors of that golden age of sci-fi. And the other two were Isaac Asimov and Robert A. Heinlein. And in terms of what he predicted the earliest were communication satellites. And the recording at the beginning of the episode, that was a clip of uh, interviews he did describing how communication satellites would revolutionize the future. 
And he spoke of this and other predictions more in a book that was released in 1962 called Profiles of the Future. And it included a chart, an actual chart of the future where he predicted new inventions and when they would be readily or commercially available. So the question then is, how much did he get right and exactly how right was he? Because, of course, there's always the details. So he first predicted, he first shared his idea that in the future, human beings would rely on satellites in geostationary orbit to relay radio signals that could be then transmitted anywhere around the world. He described this in an article that was titled Extraterrestrial Relays, which appeared in the publication Wireless World. And in addition to describing how these satellites would uh, work, he also said how this would usher in an age of global communications in which people anywhere in the world could contact anyone else. And it would take uh, about 12 years, but the first artificial satellite was launched. And that, of course, was uh, in 1957 with the Soviet Sputnik 1 satellite. It was by no means a communications satellite, but it carried a radio transmitter in it, and the mere fact that the Soviets had deployed a satellite like this initiated the space race. And the United States followed shortly thereafter. They launched the first purpose-built communications satellite in 1958, just a year later. And by the 1960s, the first commercial satellites used for communication were being deployed. By the 1980s, this became a huge industry. And today, we are contemplating, and not just contemplating, uh, Starlink and OneWeb are actively sending broadband internet satellites to orbit. To give you a sense of just how many satellites we've deployed now, according to the UN Office of Outer Space Affairs and the Union of Concerned Scientists, there are currently 8,837 satellites in orbit, and as of January 1st, 2022, 4,853 were still active. Those other satellites were those that were launched uh, many years ago and have since become defunct. And quite frankly, with the uh, idea of satellite mega constellations and the, the fact that launching payloads to space is getting cheaper and cheaper, there's going to be tens of thousands more within the next decade, most likely. And those will be a combination of telecom satellites, uh, smaller CubeSats, which will be everything from uh, Earth observation satellites to very scientific experiments sent up by universities and research institutes, and, of course, broadband internet satellites. So Clark would follow up on the predictions he had made previously in 1964 in a BBC Horizon documentary. This episode featured a clip of what he had to say, in this documentary, he was predicting the social and economic effects of what living in a world with so many satellites would be like by the year 2000. And he not only predicted worldwide telecommunications there, but there were echoes of the internet and what, what would be possible with that. And it's uh, no coincidence that satellite internet is considered the next great leap in terms of orbital communications there. In honor of this, of his accomplishment, in honor of him accurately predicting what was to come, there's now a term used to describe large belts of satellite in geostationary orbit. It's known as a Clark Belt. It's considered a viable techno-signature, interestingly enough, by uh, people who are engaged in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. A sufficiently advanced civilization, so the, uh, the logic goes, will have deployed huge constellations of satellites in orbit, 
And as a planet passes in front of its star relative to us, we should be able to see light reflected off the, that Clark belt. It'll be apparent in the, the readings. And this will allow us to confirm that there is, in fact, intelligent life on that planet. We've yet to see one, but then again, our instruments haven't been sophisticated enough. Not yet. Go James Webb. So, next up, that pinwheel station that he and Kubrick, that they wrote about and visualized there in 2001. This is a time-honored concept, in fact, which had been originally proposed back in 1903, in fact. And it was by the one of the a man that is considered the father of Russian rocketry and one of the fathers of aeronautics in general, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who wrote the rocket equation and was immensely influential when it came to predicting what the future of space would hold. In an essay, he talked about the exploration of the universe with reaction devices, and that's where he described the rocket equation. The reaction device is basically technical speak for a rocket. But he also spoke of how the growing use of rockets would allow for a human presence in orbit, and this would result in the creation of a space station or several space stations that were shaped like a wheel, and they would rotate about their center in order to simulate gravity. Because for anyone on the on the inside, the centripetal force created by all this rotation around a center, it'll have the effect of pulling people outwards, and with their feet firmly planted on the floor, this is basically no different than being pulled down by gravity. The acceleration that this imparts on you makes you feel like you're in a gravitational uh, field. And if you rotate the station fast enough, then yes, it will feel like they're standing on Earth. But you can also you can simulate various levels of gravity. So ultimately, the idea there is that not only will people not be disoriented or have a hard time acclimating to, to being in space aboard the station, but their long-term health will be assured. And this was further popularized, the idea was further popularized in the 1950s when former Nazi rocket scientist and uh, newfound NASA rocket scientist Werner von Braun, his book about the Mars Project and his ideas about uh, traveling to space. His work on the subject and his book were very, very influential, and this was uh, featured in Collier's Magazine. There was a big, colorful spread that was titled Man Will Conquer Space Soon, and it featured a rotating pinwheel station as part of it, and it was part of the uh, missions to Mars. By 1968, when 2001 A Space Odyssey was released, the concept that Clark uh, and Kubrick had portrayed there was very much in keeping with this this idea and and uh, previous proposals because between Tsiolkovsky and the uh, the Collier's spread and several other scientists who who chimed in and wrote about this idea, there were there were several illustrations of what it would look like if you compare them with the space station from two thousand and one. It's quite interesting just how how close they were. Obviously, Clark had predicted that this would be a reality by 1999 or 2001 when the, the movie is set. This was certainly not the reality at the time, but we actually were well on our way back then at, uh, at making space stations in orbit. From 1971 to 1986, for example, the Soviets had deployed a number of 
miniature space stations in orbit, and they were called the Salyut space stations. And these would accommodate crews of three cosmonauts, and some of them managed to remain in orbit for many years. And there was a total of eight deployed during that time. And the design of that, of the Salyut, led to the Zvezda module, which became the core which became the core module of the Soviet-Russian Mir space station. And that was in orbit from 1986, so the tail end of the Salyut program, uh, on up to 2001. And NASA had also deployed its own space station called Skylab, which was in orbit from 73 to 79. And, of course, in 1998, NASA, Roscosmos, the European Space Agency, the Canadian Space Agency... The Japanese Space Agency and many others, they came together to create the ISS program, and they assembled it from both Russian modules, including Zvezda, and NASA modules, and it has since been augmented by uh, modules contributed by JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, and the European Space Agency. So, it's expected to remain in operation until 2030. That sort of remains to be seen, but it does seem clear at this point that Everyone involved will remain involved, in spite of recent threats made by uh, by the Russians. Meanwhile, while the ISS carries on there with its uh, scientific operations, NASA is planning on building the Lunar Gateway between 2024 and 2028, and that's going to be a orbital space station around the moon that's going to allow for regular missions to the lunar surface and eventually onto Mars. China has already... They have completed their Tiangong program, which means Heavenly Palace. They are on their third station. They uh, they deployed successively larger ones in the form of Tiangong 1 and 2, which have both since deorbited. And they've already assembled the core elements there of the Tiangong Modular Space Station. It uh, currently consists of three modules, but it's possible they will expand. It's about one-fifth the size of the ISS, but again... It's possible they will expand, and there there are going to be um, successors to the ISS, too. Now, none of these were pinwheel stations. They didn't provide artificial gravity, but NASA has been conducting research into that very thing, to have a rotating wheel attached to either the ISS in the coming years or any future space stations, where the astronauts will sleep. So they'll sleep in simulated gravity to help ward off bone loss and muscle loss and um, and all the other effects of being in microgravity. And as for pinwheel stations, there is, in fact, an effort underway to build one. It's known as the Gateway Foundation. It started in 2016, and they have plans to build a, a station known as the Voyager Space Station, beginning as early as 2025, and they've created a uh, space construction spin-off company that's going to rely on robotic assemblers and 3D printing in order to to build it. And yes, that's going to be, if realized, it's going to be a commercial space station with all the uh, the trimmings there. People can fly there as part of uh, you know, space tourism. There's going to be opportunities for research and franchises and all that kind of stuff. And Blue Origin has a very similar plan with their Orbital Reef space station. They too hope to create this commercial outpost in space in the uh, in the the mid 2020s. There's no plans for that to have a rotating element there, but well, part of the appeal of of some of these commercial ventures is that people would be floating around in microgravity for for fun. So 
Clark was not bang on there with that one, not in terms of dates, but he certainly, he predicted that this would be the way we were going. And what's interesting is, yes, those predictions are, are what uh, many people who are involved in the planning for uh, rotating pinwheel stations that they'll, that they'll cite. Another thing from uh, 2001 was the use of space planes to fly people to these, to these space stations. And the idea was you would launch from Earth aboard this reusable spacecraft, and Clark and Kubrick included a, the, a decal on the, the ship design there that said Pan Am, and that's a now-defunct airline service. But, of course, for their purposes, they were saying that, yeah, in the future, there will be commercial um, launch providers that will take people not only from one country to the next or one continent to the next, but to space. Here, too, this is a, a prediction that's getting closer, but the, the main thing that was, uh, that was there was the design of the, of the spacecraft. To, to look at it, you do get the faint impression there that what you're seeing looks uh, somewhere between the Concorde and the space shuttle. And it's absolutely true. The, the space shuttle was the very first reusable space plane, and development on that started in the 1970s, and they became, of course, so iconic. Anyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s, frankly, it was, uh, it was symbolic, it was iconic, it represented spaceflight itself. And the idea being that, uh, well, after the Apollo program, NASA began looking into how to cut costs um, to make it cheaper to deploy payloads to orbit by developing something that was reusable. And the space shuttle ended up still being very expensive. It had to be launched to space with an external tank and two solid rocket boosters. But it verified, and the space shuttles did so much in their time, which included assembling the ISS and putting countless satellites into orbit and also deploying Hubble and servicing it. it immeasurable contributions. The design was still expensive, but it did pave the way for... Future developments, not the least of which include reusable rockets like Blue Origin, SpaceX, and not to mention uh, Virgin Galactic's space planes, which are developed to ferry people up to suborbital altitudes so that they can get, get a feeling of weightlessness and see the Earth from space. Yeah, all of this grew from NASA's work with the space shuttle. The Soviets had attempted to develop their own, called the Buran, and some prototypes were built. They're virtually identical to the space shuttle. And unfortunately, they never really got a chance. But yes, from that, from all that work, we not only got the commercial sector developing uh, their reusable vehicles, we've also had some very sophisticated, smaller, and much more affordable than the uh, the space shuttle vehicles created too. And a perfect example is the Boeing X-37. It's an autonomous vehicle that... You launch aboard a rocket, it flies around in orbit and returns on its own power, just like the space shuttle, but could be used to transport crews in the in the future. And China has their own Chongfu space plane, which is uh, still shrouded in mystery, but is believed to be very uh, similar to the Boeing X-37. And Sierra Nevada, for years, has been working on their Dream Chaser. That space plane, it is similar in design to the space shuttle, but smaller, sleeker, and and lighter. So yes, it too is much cheaper to launch to orbit. So again, this didn't come true by the turn of the century, but still, it is coming true right now. 
where commercial providers will fly people to space, where reusable space planes become a regular feature. So it's it that too was uh, pretty uncanny, and and one has to wonder. It's like the design of that Pan Am flight that flies one of the uh, the main characters in in the film and in the book to space. If that didn't help inform the design of the space shuttle at the end of the day. Yeah, looking at a lot of the early designs, because uh, NASA had been tinkering with different designs for uh, space planes themselves throughout the 60s, it did seem like there was overlap. As a accomplished scientist, Arthur C. Clarke would have been privy to that information, so it could be a bit of a chicken-and-the-egg sort of uh, theory there. Last but not least, the idea of a lunar colony. Now, suffice it to say, we don't have one. That's obvious. The prediction that Clark had made, and this was something that, this was the source of a lot of his you know, predictions that hadn't come true yet as of the, the turn of the century. He was basing the idea on the progress of the Apollo program. By 1968, they were on the verge of landing two astronauts on the moon, and they would land ten more before the program was over. And so, like many people, he predicted that, yes, uh, crewed missions to Mars would follow by the 1980s or so. By the turn of the century, we would have gone back to the moon many times and built a colony there. And possibly just, uh, you know, the subject of fantasy and, and good science fiction. Nevertheless, the planning for a moon base. A lot of plans were drafted back in the 1960s because... NASA, of course, was was open to what are we going to do after this? And it wasn't yet clear to anyone, even at NASA, that with the closing of the Apollo era between the Soviets and NASA, that they would shift their focus to developing space stations and reusable spacecraft to in order to ensure long-term stays in orbit and in space. Yeah, it wasn't yet clear to them that that would be the focus and that there'd be dwindling budgets. So... It wasn't, uh, it wasn't naive to think things would keep going. Now, what's interesting, though, is that since the mid-2000s, with the space shuttle era winding down, and with all the success with the Mir and the ISS and other space stations, that space agencies around the world and the commercial sector started looking to the next big leap. And Mars is certainly a big part of that, but first and foremost, going back to the moon. So, in terms of what these programs, this planning looked like, you had the Constellation program, started in 2005, which was now attempting to build heavy launch rockets again to replace the space shuttle and usher in a new program where missions would be conducted beyond low Earth orbit uh, for the first time since the Apollo era. This eventually led to, by 2010, NASA began talking about their Moon to Mars mission architecture, and for that, they began developing all the previous planning in the Constellation program, sort of came together, coalesced with the Space Launch System, NASA's new heavy launch system, which they've, they've completed work on the first, and its launch test will happen in the near future. The Orion spacecraft is another, and the Lunar Gateway. And the plan for going back to the moon, as it stands, is the Artemis program. So that will attempt to send the first crews since the Apollo era back by 2025. But the long-term goal is to establish a base camp on the surface that will allow for a sustained human presence. And 
Other space agencies have similar plans. The European Space Agency wants to build the International Moon Village that will act as a successor to the ISS. And China and Russia have uh, even declared a partnership on the International Lunar Research Station. And they plan to build that on the moon by the 2030s or 2040s. Into this there, there's even plans for permanent settlements and commercial settlements and habitats that allow for lunar tourism. So the idea of a sustained human presence on the moon, it's not theory anymore. It has moved into the full-on planning stages and will be happening. Now, the, the full extent, the overall success of this will depend upon so many things. But by this decade and the next, and certainly before 2050 rolls around, we're likely to see those plans bear fruit. So a lunar colony may very well become a reality. In these and other things, Clark was unusually um, predictive, and a lot of this did have to do with the fact that, yeah, he was privy to a lot of planning that was taking place at the time, and a lot of people today involved in space exploration, and whether it's uh, through space agencies or it's commercial, they've gone back and they've dusted off a lot of these plans, and they put themselves to work trying to make a lot of things that never got a chance to get off the ground to become a reality. Nevertheless, by popularizing these things, by communicating about these things, by making them a regular feature of his books and his lectures and his interviews, Clark played a major role popularizing these ideas and bringing them to the public. So when people today are going back and dusting off the old ideas, the fact that they have the ability to do that in the first place is because of Arthur C. Clarke. He made this stuff common knowledge. He made a lot of these ideas household names. He didn't stop there. There is uh, also the concept of the space elevator. And that too may be a reality before this uh, century is out. It's that one is a particularly uh, bold idea, and in fact, I, I hope to dedicate an entire episode to it, so stay tuned for that. Anyway, to, to summarize, Arthur C. Clarke is referred to as the prophet of the space age for a very good reason. He, uh, he was a person who, like many, he was far-seeing. He was, uh, and he certainly wasn't the only one uh, of his time who, who had this uh, ability there, but it, it is a rare ability. He was immensely fascinated by what we were doing in space at the time, and he saw the potential for it. He saw very clearly ahead to a lot of things, and in that respect, he was a lot like his predecessors, including Tsiolkovsky, and these people do. They do come around rather rarely in history, and what they have to say is very, very fascinating and inspiring, and if, for any viewers, if you have not seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, or read the book, I would highly recommend that because they're very eye-opening. And it is really, truly wonderful to see the sort of speculation and, one might argue, optimism in this film. I mean, certainly by, by modern standards, the idea that humanity would have a permanent outpost on the moon and a permanent foothold in space would seem optimistic. But yeah, nowadays we're getting closer. But I think Arthur C. Clarke may have said it best when it came to making predictions about the future. In the epilogue of 2001, the novelization, he said, Please remember, this is only a work of fiction. The truth, as always, will be far stranger. As far as predictions go, that has to be the most accurate one he ever made. 
In the meantime, thank you for tuning in to this first segment in Prophets of the Future. Join us again as we'll be talking about other major visionaries who only seem to come around once every so often. I'm Matt Williams, and this has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.